Welcome to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher. And today's interview is a collaboration of the Immigrant Stories Project and the Mount Sopras Historical Society, where your story is our history. Dorothea and Doug Ferris recently celebrated 55 years together. Dorothea has spent her career in public service, the Aspen School District board member, Pitkin County Commissioner, and a charter member of the Thompson Divide Coalition, just to name a few. Doug has chosen the outdoors as his workplace. He started working as a logger in his 20s and eventually started his own business. Today, 50 years later, he works alongside his son in their logging company. Dorothea and Doug have been called the odd couple by some, and sometimes even refer to themselves as the tree hugger and the logger. I recently sat down with Doug and Dorothea to talk about how they forged a wonderful life together. On behalf of the Mount Sopras Historical Society, I'd like to thank you for joining me. And in advance, I'd like to thank you for all that you've given to the Valley and to the region. You're um, a treasure, and we all appreciate the, the time and effort that you've given to make this a better place. Dorothea, I wanted to start by just asking you to talk about what it was like growing up back in New Jersey, back east. Okay, I was born in 1935, so it was a difficult time, and it was through the wartime growing up and uh, World War II, and my dad was a policeman, and we lived in East Orange, New Jersey, and he had grown up in North Jersey on a farm, so we had the advantage of having grandparents who lived on a farm in North Jersey where we spent a lot of time. And another set of grandparents who lived with us or us with them, I never really knew. We uh, Two families lived together, and they were immigrants from Sweden who had come here as young people and worked in the steel mills in Pennsylvania, then building the Holland and Lincoln Tunnel and hard work in New Jersey. And the area I grew up in was very urban, um, Mafia run, Essex County, New Jersey, was sort of the head of the New Jersey Mafia. So you knew who was running things. And you played on the street, and you played city games, and you learned how to work with people and who was in charge of what. And I went through an excellent school system there. I was fortunate. The schools were good, and the teachers were excellent. Many of them, I think, lived in New York City and commuted to New Jersey to teach, which was interesting. And when I got out of school, I went to college in New Jersey and found New Jersey College for Women, not to my liking. So I checked out Lovejoy's Guide to Colleges and uh, had never been farther west than Philadelphia on a school field trip and down the shore. And those from the east know what down the shore means. You go down the shore and you put your blanket out and you watch the ocean for a day and then you go home. And uh, Colorado looked pretty good. So I picked the University of Colorado out of Lovejoy's Guide, was able to get on the train and travel to Boulder, and the bus driver stopped the car, the bus and said, okay, kids, there it is. And I think we had a busload of 30 kids in tears about the beauty of Boulder. It was a wonderful experience. Came to Aspen once or twice during college and to ski and to just see the place. Decided it was a pretty nice place also. 
So after graduation from Boulder, I had a job in Washington State um, to teach in Kirkland, Washington. But I got a job at the hotel, Jerome Hotel in Aspen as a waitress. I applied to the owner of the hotel. Lawrence Elisha. Lawrence Elisha for a job as a waitress. Summer job. Summer job. Teaching. And the institute and the music had been advertised in Look magazine. And my mother had mentioned that, gee, this looks like a pretty interesting place to go. So I applied for a job and got the job for the summer. So I worked in Aspen as a waitress at the Jerome Hotel for a summer. Then I went to Washington State for a job teaching. I had signed a contract. And although I could have stayed then and taught in Carbondale because Lawrence Elisha's son was the superintendent and principal in Carbondale, and Lawrence assured me he could get me a job in Carbondale, but I had signed a contract. And in those days, if you signed a contract, you lived up to that. So I taught in Washington State for two years, uh, traveled some, and decided I'd like to come back to Carbondale and the Roaring Fork Valley. Called, got a job was interviewed by Principal Paul Turpin and uh, was hired on the phone, something he promised he would never do again. (laughs) But it worked for me, and I taught for two years, and that was when I met Doug's mother and taught with Agnes Ferris, and uh, through that connection, met Doug. You said that uh, you went to college. A A lot of people during that time didn't have that opportunity. Did your family encourage you to to go to college? My grandparents were immigrants from Sweden, and my mother had worked as a secretary, and it was most important to them. My brother was the first boy in the family to go to college. Uh, There were those who thought that was just a, a lazy way to get out of work, and there was no reason for a woman to go to college. But my grandparents had saved some money over time. And when let I mentioned me, Boulder, me she interject. said, I'll pay for that if you want to go to Boulder. So it was extremely important, absolutely. That was, the, that was her maternal grandparents' side, her mother's family. The father's family, they were, they were old uh, New Jersey people. That, uh, you know, college was, kid ought to be getting out of high school and finding a job and going to work sort of thing. So there wasn't a lot of encouragement from the father's side of the family, but the mother's side, very important. It was a generational issue as well. You know, if you had to go to work, you went to work. But it was, we were moving into the era, of course you need to go to college and have something that can protect you. A woman's role was narrowly defined then. Oh, yes, yes. And some of us knew then we didn't fit into that normal role. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Dorothea and Doug Ferris, longtime residents of the Valley. Dorothea is talking about growing up in New Jersey. So how did, how did you break out of that normal role? In, in what ways? Uh, My father's side of the family was pretty independent, so there was a lot of independence there. And I was always encouraged to do what you believed was right. And I remember comments, you can talk about things, people, or ideas. Stick with the ones who talk about ideas. And it it was a way of life that said, do the best you can do. And if it had been stay home, get married, and have kids, or not go to college, it would have been fine too. But it was encouragement of what individuals wanted to do. Doug, what about you? Uh, well, 
you know, growing up here was really uh, a great time because there were no subdivisions. <laughs> there were no, uh, it was either farming or coal mining is what you wanted to do. And I, at the time when I got out of high school, uh, I wasn't encouraged too strong to go to college and it would have been very difficult to find the money for it. And I probably was not a, I didn't concentrate on studies well enough to qualify for scholarships because I thought basketball was a lot more fun and a lot more important than, than having a scholarship for some reason or another. But, uh, then uh, I was, after I graduated from high school in 1954, I went to work for a local contractor running heavy equipment. And at the, then in 1957, that's back when the draft was still for young men was still in, in effect. And I was getting pretty close to being drafted in the Army. And I didn't really think I wanted to be a soldier that much, and so I decided I'll, I'll enlist in the Air Force and, and try that, which I really never regretted. So uh, that's kind of, kind of how I got started that way. So fill me in on your, on your grandparents and on both sides of your family. Where did they all come from? Okay, now my grandparents on mother's side were Italian immigrants that came from, came from the area in Italy. It was uh, in the northern part of Italy, close to, well, like all the old families in the valley here. They came from Aosta, Italy, and it was close to uh, Fran France, Italy, and uh, what, Switzerland? Switzerland. Yeah, it was up in that in that. So that I I think that's probably why those people from that area came to this valley because the terrain was similar, you know, the mountains and and whatever. But things were really tough for those people back in my grandparents, grandfather and grandmother. Their last name was Blank, B L A N C. And uh, they came in 1905, I believe it was, and and I can remember my aunt saying my grandfather was the oldest one in his family of children, and their father had deserted them, I believe, just left, because I guess he couldn't handle the fact that he couldn't make enough to support his family even. And so my grandfather helped support all the rest of the younger ones. And, and I remember my aunt saying that he mentioned that lots of times he went to bed, let's see, with, I guess with, Maybe a little bit of food, but not enough to you know be satisfactory. So he sacrificed for his younger siblings. So that's why they thought they'll they'll come to this country and try to make a better life for themselves. And of course, Dad's side of the family, uh, they were originally from Missouri. And when my dad was four years old in nineteen. 16 I think that was they came to eastern Colorado out on the prairies and so that's where they came from there was this whole movement of Missourians who came, came out, west, yeah, further came west further west yeah it's kind of like that old farther west uh, further west sort of right. deal so so you've told me before but tell the story of your grandfather coming to to Aspen. oh to Aspen yeah my aunt remember her telling about that uh they I assume, and I can't remember ever finding out, I assume they took the train from probably Ellis Island or New York to get to Aspen, but they did have other uh, friends and relatives over here that had already told them there was work here and there was whatever. But uh, they had promised my grandfather a job, the, the mining company, in one of the silver mines in Aspen, promised him a job. 
And so when he got to Aspen that day, he had his suit and his tie and his vest on and white shirt. And he said, well, I'm going to go over by the mine. Just make sure they know that I, you know, I want to work. And so, yep, the mine foreman superintendent says, sure, yep, you come to work. But he stayed that day. I, I get emotional about this, but he stayed and shoveled ore with that suit on that rest of that day. So they knew he was ready. I love that story because it so symbolizes the the immigrant experience that uh, that I think we sometimes lose lose sight of is that that persistence that that need that desire to yep. to make to make a better life the commitment to a promise and the commitment to other people and so many of them were making very little money but sending it home for the other people and you have to wonder how bad it had to be in their home country to leave and work that way I don't, yeah, and I don't think people really understand what you have to give up. What How? sacrifice you do make, yeah. I think also a lot of the women who, who came, uh, my grandmother, for example, from Sweden, went back to Sweden a couple of different times. My granddad had no interest in going back to Sweden. But I think many of the women thought, as soon as we get on our feet again, we can go home again. We can go back home I think most of the men knew that's not going to happen. But the women thought, we'll get straightened out financially and we'll be okay and go home. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher. And my interview today is with Dorothea and Doug Ferris. Dorothea and Doug recently celebrated 55 years together. Tell me about how the two of you met. I want to... Um, you mentioned a, story. a lot of uh, the teachers in Carbondale. When I was teaching in Carbondale, uh, I came down, and they hadn't finished my apartment yet, so someone was building an apartment over a garage for the new teacher. And uh, I lived in one of the old homes in town in an attic bedroom for a month or so till they got ready. So it was all very... Uh, work together on this. So I'm with all these teachers who were teaching when they were 18 or 20 years old and didn't have a teacher certificate. They had gone to college for maybe two years and they were certified to teach, but the law came through that you had to have an education now for four years to get your certificate. So they were going back to take classes. So we took classes all over. Different people were teaching in gypsum and in, in, um, Basalt. You went we, as far as mentoring one We go to mentoring and take these classes. So I thought it was great sport. So I'd go with them and we'd go take all these courses and they got certified to teach. Now, but now they, let me break in here for a minute. She's talking about... Her mother, Doug's mother was one of these she, teachers. Well, we're talking about two different eras. I mean, she was a 22-year-old teacher and she's teaching with other people who are 40 and 45 years old. So, But they all went to take these education courses together so that's where the difference in age thing was yeah and yeah it was great we studied the history of russia and all sorts of fun topics and uh, traveled around a lot and so i got to know them well and there were about six or eight teachers and at lunch we all sat in the library and ate our lunch while the kids were having their lunch somewhere and They'd share stories, and they all knew everybody. And Doug was in the Air Force in Alaska, and he would send letters home. So Agnes, his mother, 
would read the letters out loud to everybody who knew him. Well, all the teachers knew me because they did, had they all taught him. me, you know. And I had been written up as the new teacher in the Glenwood Post. And uh, Doug said something that I saw an article in the Post about some new teacher. Who? What's the dirt on this teacher is basically what he said. So I answered his mother and said, if he wants to know, he can write and ask me. So he did. So we wrote for two years before we met. And so here we are 55 years later. <laughs> Talk to me about some of the difficult times that you had to get through as a couple. Oh, we've had, uh, we've had some financial times that were really difficult to try to go through. And that's always hard for a young married couple. And then we've, uh, out of our three children that we have, we would have had six. We had two sets of twins, and uh, the first set was uh, we saved one of the twins. They were premature, two boys, and one twin died after about 10 hours. And then our next set of children, what was that, a year and a half later or something, were twins. And uh, it was a boy and a girl, and the little girl happened to strangle to death on the umbilical cord because, unfortunately, the doctor, we were in Fort Collins because I was going to college, and the doctor, we since have found out that he wasn't a very competent doctor, and so he didn't get there in time for the birth, and the, the baby girl strangled, and the little boy lived about uh, 10 months. 10 days. 10 days, but he had, uh, he had some... Uh, problems with uh, what swallowing I think it was and and yeah there were several different things so I think the hardest the hardest part is that was a tough time uh, tough and you know and on the one hand it brings you together but that's such a personal issue that it makes it hard you know how do you talk about something like that and resolve it I think it's extremely difficult so that and money and I think uh, and go beyond that you know other things you can work out yeah Death, death and money are right death up there. Death and money are kind of up there pretty high. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For some couples, that kind of loss, you know, you talked about being able to reconcile that mm-hmm. as a couple and dealing with it as individuals. Sometimes that tears a family apart. How did you, how did you support one another through that? Uh, she, uh, it was, of course, it was tougher for her because she was the person who, you know, carried those babies. In the first uh, set that we had, we didn't know that, that we had twins. Uh, she started feeling like she, you know, six, six and a half months along in her pregnancy, she didn't feel very good one night. So I called, that was when Dr. Uh, Dr. Hendricks. Hendricks was here. And I called, and he said, well, come right down to the clinic right away. And as soon as we got there, he said, we've got to make a flying trip to Glenwood. That baby's about ready to be born. And nobody knew until she had... Uh, till the well, second the first, one was coming yeah, out that the, there were twins. The first, the first baby yeah. that we... I think the one we saved was... Uh, and Dr. Hendricks said to the nurse, oh, my God, there's another one. <laughs> nobody knew there were twins. You know, so that was tough for her to to carry uh, the babies and then lose one then and then the next uh, lose two. That was very much harder for her. But, you know, I just uh, I just tried to be there to, you know, support her and hold her. And You know, Doug's mother was here, too, uh, still alive at the time. And, you know, support from other people 
who care what happens to you is important. And, you know, not deep conversations about any of it, but, you know, we're there to help you when we can, so just holler. And that, I think, was pretty typical of how people here felt. You didn't have to be this deep, close, interrelationship, and you didn't talk all about relationships. Yeah, you just had so a relationship you just had that supported, family-supported family, family uh, stronger, I believe, back exactly. then. Exactly, and, and they weren't probably as as far, you know, there's so many young families around here now who have come here from somewhere else, and they're... Their parents are back east or Midwest or whatever, so they aren't. They don't have the chance to have a close family relationship other than calling or now you text or email or whatever, but it's still not as much as living right here. I think there was something in the whole atmosphere about if we're all here, it's because we want to be here and we love this area and, and we're going to work with everybody to do it. You didn't have to bear your soul to everyone you could see someone you knew a little bit who might know something about it, and you knew they cared. And they didn't have to do anything but say, I'm here for you, or not even say anything. You had that sense of belonging to something. And I, I worry that we lose that a lot, that a lot of people don't have a sense of belonging anywhere. And I've been lucky in, in that coming here, I have pictures that I look at from 50 years ago, looking up the valley toward Maroon Bells or looking up the Crystal Valley or pictures of Redstone. I mean, I felt from the day I got here that I belonged here. I had just been put in the wrong place for a while. But learning <laughs> to play stoop ball came in handy. But Well, then that was going to be my question. Here you were uh, away from your family. And, yeah. and what was your integration into Doug's family like? Um it it was just fine, and my family, my dad um, died at the age of 50. He was a, a policeman, and there was stress and whatever. He died of a heart attack hunting. So, And my brother, after college, moved to Georgia. So going back to New Jersey was never an issue. I mean, there would have been, you know, I just came home. And the entire town was sort of a family of people. And Doug's family was extremely open and welcoming his sisters and his mother was a dear friend. So um, it was just that sense of belonging somewhere. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Doug and Dorothea Ferris. They're talking about their 55 years together. Looking back on your lives, I wanted to ask individually, what what it Individually, what are you most proud of when you look at your life? My kids and the family unity. I'm most proud of them. They're... Whatever Doug and I did with regard to our kids, it worked. And they're good kids, and I wouldn't trade them for anything. And uh, so I feel very successful there. Yeah, that's the most important thing is just the fact that, uh, you know, we, uh, we did things together and and as a family that was uh, that was the most important Im accomplishment i think it's interesting that i asked you what what you're most proud of individually and you both talked about family but my the my next question is so what are you most proud of as a couple and it, of course it's already been answered. we're still together <laughs> yeah. having uh had differences of opinion with regard to it and what's valuable doug would never in a million years want to do what i do in terms of going to a meeting and fighting for things he wouldn't do that and i wouldn't be able to run a business i don't think you can get along if you're trying to compete in the same cycle same circle somewhere um and we've been able to 
reach out on our own, I don't really want to talk about a log truck. And he doesn't really want to talk about what happened at the commissioner meeting. So you have other people you talk to about that, or you talk about the important parts of that. Neither of us has ever tried to take over the identity of the other or control the way one was going. I've never felt as if I was denied or encouraged to do one thing over the other. What, what, most of the time it just says, whatever it is that you want to do, we'll work it out. Hmm. And that works. Well, I, you've probably I, done that for him. I hope so. I've, I learned early on that you don't control her or you don't tell her what to do. She's a strong enough personality that, uh, well, that would probably be an impossibility to do anyway. <laughs> so, Why waste the energy? <laughs> well, and you probably wouldn't respect and want to live with somebody who exactly. did everything that you told them to do <laughs> without question. Yeah. yeah, it's, you know, it just happened to, to work pretty well. Uh, and, and the fact that we each won, uh, when she was, uh, she wasn't elected county commissioner till we moved down to Carbondale here and, and just were inside the Pitkin County line. But uh, there's a lot about the entire length of the county and uh, especially here in the Crystal River Valley that she wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. I could tell her where this place is or what. I mean, I know all the history and I knew all the old ranchers that lived blah, blah, blah here and there. And so I could tell her, but I never once, you know, I never meant anything to me to say yeah you should make a decision like this on uh, on this you know i didn't you know that's that's her and the other commissioner's job to do that you both have done an, an amazing job uh raising a, a family and and giving back to your community and i uh i really want to celebrate the life that you've made together and i want to thank you for how that's enriched the rest of us. Thanks for Thank sitting down and talking to me about your life. Thank you very much. That was Dorothea and Doug Ferris, Valley Treasures. For more on immigrant stories, please go to our website, kdnk.org.